You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Good morning, church. Today's reading will be taken from the book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. In a recent New York Times interview with a, an author and a, a Christian professor named Kate Bowler, she was asked about our nation and really what this moment in history is revealing about us. And this is what she said. She said, I think it's painful for everyone to know that there's just not a lot of room between anybody and the very edge. It really does run counter to the whole American story. It's a story about how scrappy individuals will always make it. And it's a story about how Americans will always build something that will save the nation. And currently, she says, both things are not true. Everyone else in the world will suffer too, but I don't think that they will suffer nearly the same cultural disillusionment because they didn't have that narrative of exceptionalism. That's a really interesting thought. Essentially, what she's saying is we're suffering twice. In other words, as the world suffers in the middle of a global virus, us with them, what we here in America are suffering most is the disappointment that we believed something that turns out to not necessarily be entirely true. We're suffering the death of our vision of being exceptional, our vision of being unstoppable, all of our expectations about what life is and what life should be and where things were heading. And even for some of us, it means the death of these expectations of what God would do for us. It's as if all of our goals and all of our dreams just vanished into thin air. And here we are in 2020, like the first disciples, stunned, standing, staring off into oblivion and thinking to ourselves, well, 
that is not what I expected. Things have not turned out like I expected them to. But what I want you to see here in Acts is that there's actually a way forward marked by hope. And, and it's not going to be found by staring, dazed and confused, continuing to look at your present moment with disappointment. Here it is. It's going to be found by looking forward with expectancy. By looking forward with expectancy. Now, as Christians, we tend to focus on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Obviously, for good reason. But it's often to the neglect of the ascension of Jesus. As one author put it, for many of us, the story of Jesus is that he died, he rose, and then he was vaporized. Where did Jesus go? I, I, I don't know. Like He, uh, he kind of like he vanished? Like a cloud took him or, or something? Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? Hmm. Good and bad? I, I don't know. What does the ascension of Jesus mean for us today? And what does the ascension of Jesus mean for our future? That's what we're going to look at today. And what we're going to see is that the ascension brings to us presence, power, and a promise. Let's look first at presence. Now, earlier in Scripture, in John 16, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. He's alluding to this moment coming, and he says these words. He says, it's for your benefit that I go away. It's good that I go. Now, think about that statement. It's good that I leave you. And so the question that we have is, how is Jesus going away beneficial? How is it beneficial that anyone that we love and like goes away. We may conjure up some ideas of painful ideas from our past, like for perhaps you had a father that walked out and left you. Maybe you had a spouse that just one day decided to leave you. Maybe you had a friend that you really depended on that moved away. Maybe you had that one coworker that made your job tolerable and then they were transferred. It's hard to imagine, imagine how it is beneficial for Jesus to go away. How is that beneficial? But the scriptures tell us that it is, in fact, beneficial. See, this Easter tide, we're exploring the space between the resurrection of Jesus and the promise of his return. And as uh, we've been mentioning, the already but not yet, that, that time between is marked by paradox, which means things here seem impossible or even untrue. Ideas seem to clash, but in the long run, they turn out to be compatible and, and true. And really, the paradox of the ascension of Jesus Christ is that Jesus ascends into heaven to be closer to us on earth. There it is. He went away in order to never forsake you. What? Let's dig into that thought. Now, Earlier uh, on in American history, in the 1960s, there was a race to get to space. Now, America holds the claim that we made it to the moon first, but it was actually Russia that made it into outer space first. And one of those Russian astronauts, Yuri Gagarin, once said these words. He said, I flew into space, but I didn't see God. All right, I went up there. I went, I went where everyone thought God is, and it's just void and empty, no God. 
Later, another Soviet leader named Nikita Khrushchev said a very similar thing. He said, why are you clinging to God? Here, Gagarin flew into space. He didn't see God. What are you you holding on to this whole concept of God is out there? We've been out there. He's not there. And so this is the idea that we get in our minds when we read that Jesus was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight, that he's no longer here, but he's up there, like somewhere beyond the moon, somewhere in space. He's he's up there in heaven. But when the Bible talks about being taken into a cloud, it is not so much a spatial description as if Jesus jetted up through the stratosphere, but it's more of a spiritual description. And any student of the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament scriptures, would understand what is being communicated here. Because in the Old Testament, the cloud was often the visual manifestation of the presence of God. It was the cloud that enshrouded the Shekinah glory of God, like the cloud that filled the temple that caused all the priests to not even be able to stand to their feet. Or the cloud that led and directed the children of Israel through the wilderness. Jesus being taken up into the clouds is intended to be understood that Jesus is being reunited with the presence of God in the heavenly realm. But wait, then the question is this, how does that make Jesus present with us then? He's gone away to be with God, doesn't that mean that he's absent from us? We would suspect that. But it's not true. In fact, far from it. It means that he is more present than ever. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, we're told this. Speaking of Jesus, he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Jesus ascended on high in order to fill the whole universe. So think about this. Before the ascension... Jesus was limited to one place at a time in ancient Palestine, one specific location with two feet walking, I don't know, like the average walking speed, three miles an hour or whatever. Very, very limited. But when he was lifted up, it meant all that Jesus is and all that Jesus has done and accomplished, his saving work on the cross, his forgiveness, his healing, his his blessings, all of that moves into the entire universe. So that means that we don't have to go to Galilee to see him or go to Galilee to to receive his life and to receive his blessings. It means that he comes to us. The fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father on high in heaven means that he is all the more present with us here on earth. That's the paradox that we need to lean into. It was St. Augustine who once said that God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. And this is how. The ascension is key. As Jesus ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit, the personal presence of God, to be in us and to be with us. And so because Jesus is with the Father, the Spirit is with you. And that means for the Christian, we will never, ever be alone. The ascension brings presence. Secondly, brings power. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we tend to think of Jesus being lifted up spatially. He was here, then he went up there. He's got you know, the big guy upstairs or something like that. 
but ascension is less about floating upward and more about being lifted up or being exalted. Think about this. Throughout history, when a prince or a princess or an individual, for that matter, was to take the crown, when they were going to become king or queen, it was said that they were ascending to the throne. It really is a picture of like royal upward mobility. It means an individual is taking the highest position of the land. They're becoming ruler over all. This is the picture when Jesus ascends that he is king of kings. Now, in one way, this is what the disciples had been expecting. But in another way, this is not what the disciples had been expecting. Look with me in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it go time? Like now's the time, right? That where you're going to take the throne of Israel and make us an independent nation once again, all those sort of things. See, the disciples are very similar to us and it, in that we're constantly being tempted to settle for political movements and constantly placing our hopes and our dreams in earthly kingdoms. Well, you know, if so-and-so is elected, then, then we're, you know, then we're going to be able to secure our Christian freedoms for sure. Then we'll be a you know, Christian nation once again. Or, you know, if this political party has the majority, then we'll truly be a just people. And, and you know, we, we, we create these cheat sheets and spell out, you know, if you're a real Christian, this is how you vote. I mean, you, you know, your vote is yours, but if you're a real Christian, this is how you should vote. And worse than all of this, we begin to believe that God has a political leaning. That if God came incarnate and walked into the voting booth, that he would align with our political views. This is crazy. But this is what we do. See, we're good with Jesus ascending as long as he's moving in the direction that we want him to. For the disciples, it was the throne of Jerusalem. For us, it's the Oval Office or the Supreme Court. What the disciples had in mind was the establishing of an earthly throne. However, Jesus was accomplishing, listen to me, something better. Jesus is always doing something better, and this is what he is doing. He's establishing a heavenly throne, a heavenly kingdom. And so the difference between an earthly throne and a heavenly throne are very, very important. And one of the primary differences has to do with power. How earthly thrones and the heavenly throne deals with power. Think about this with me. Earthly authority consolidates power. Essentially, earthly authority takes. We can count on earthly authorities over us eventually taking from us. We can all agree upon that one, by the way. It's about gaining control. It's about gaining authority. It's about the people in power minimal minimizing their vulnerability at the stake of our vulnerability. It's about alliances being leveraged in order to secure positions. Earthly power pushes certain people down and elevates certain people. It does all sorts of weird things. But look at what heavenly authority does. Verses 7 through 8. He, Jesus, said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So power linked with authority here. But 
You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. Think about this. Earthly thrones seek to take and centralize power, but the heavenly throne spreads it out, looking for opportunities to disperse that power to the people. Friend, this is the very self-giving nature of the love of Jesus Christ. He gives. Jesus is not marked by taking. He's marked by giving. He gives himself over to death on a cross so that the life and power of the resurrection may come to us. He subjects himself to vulnerability and pain so that we can be empowered. Essentially, Jesus descends so that we can be lifted up. What a king. What a power. What a throne. In Ephesians chapter 1, the the apostle Paul tells the church that he is constantly praying that they grasp this. He's like, man, if you get one thing, please understand this. He says, I also pray that you will know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe him, focused on us, according to to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is the heart of the ascension. Jesus is exalted as king of kings above every name and every power and every dominion in order to spread his healing reign to the ends of the world. And far from being... I don't know, some sort of political or, or ethnic movement. This is the global love of God being unleashed into this world where he's bringing liberation to the oppressed and he's bringing dignity to the despised and honor to the shamed and power to the powerless. This is what this king does. Now, one of the main ways that he does this is through entrusting his people, you and I, with the transforming message of the gospel and by giving us his very own spirit. Look with me in verse 1. Luke, who's the author of Acts, says this. He says, in the first book, well, what's the first book? Luke, the gospel of Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began Mark that word, began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. So what that means is that Jesus' ascension was not the end of his earthly ministry. It was Jesus just getting started. And now, the way that he is continuing to spread his healing reign into the world, catch this, is through us. It's through you and me. It's through his church. It's really interesting. The disciples ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Is it go time? And it seems like he dodges the question. Seems like he's like, eh, let's not talk about that. He's not dodging the question. He's turning the tables. The disciples ask, will you? And Jesus essentially asks, no, will you? You will be my witnesses. You will display my power. I will advance my kingdom through you. Now, I know, let's be honest for a second. Well, hopefully you've been honest this whole time. For a lot of us right now, we are feeling powerless. A lot of us are feeling really limited. And I think even for some people I've talked to, feeling debilitated. 
like the, the thought of going and the power of God and you know, advancing the kingdom, we're like, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed by like responding to so-and-so's text message because I don't even know what to say. Like, I'm overwhelmed by the smallest details of my life, going into the world and proclaiming the life-transforming message of the gospel. What are you talking about? I can't even, I can't even handle that right now. Friend, don't forget, don't forget that the same Jesus that said, go in power, go in power, is the same one who said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect. Listen, in weakness, he's not looking for the strongest ones, he's looking for the dependent ones. You weak? You at the end of your rope? You feel empowerless? You feel independent? You're a prime candidate for the power of God to be unleashed into the world. Truth is, Christian, uh, we're not lacking power. In In Christ, you have all the power that you will ever need. But what we need to remember is that this power, the power of God, is unlocked by trusting God and then made available to us when we step out in faith. God directs his power towards those who step out and take risks for the kingdom of God. It's not for those who are standing stagnant, trying to play it safe in this life. There's no reason to to fill that sort of life with power. It's for those who step out. Now, I know that some of us are thinking, okay, once I feel powerful, once I feel the empowering of God, then I'll step out. No, that's not how it works. It's go, step out in faith, trust me, and I will supply the power. And I love this. The angels come up to the disciples and they ask, why are you still standing here, man? Come on. Jesus just gave you the greatest commission ever. He just gave you some life-transforming directions here. Why are you still standing here? And that's a question we need to consider today, too. Why are we still standing here? Why are we still stagnant? Why are we froze? We've received the power. Lastly, the promise. Jesus ascended and he will return. And here we are in the middle. But what we need to to note is that these are not just two random, unrelated events. In fact, the ascension is key to understanding the promise of his return. Look with me in verse 10 through 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You know what they're saying there is that the way that Jesus goes away shows to us the way that Jesus will come again. Think about this, the first coming of Jesus, it was veiled, it was mysterious. A lot of people were like, who is this? Is this the one? Are you sure? The there was a lot of uncertainty about who Jesus was. But when he returns, the Bible tells us, when Christ returns to restore all of creation and to, to put an end to all evil and sin and injustice and ultimately death, there will be no uncertainty about his presence. 
There will no, be no one just sitting around saying, is that the one? It will be clear. It will be visible. It will be glorious. It will be powerful. And this is the promise that totally changes the way that we now face life today. It did for the disciples. Look it. They went from being stunned and just staring off into oblivion to then returning to Jerusalem with eagerness and hope and becoming, by God's grace, the founders of the biggest movement the world has ever known that we are a part of today, 2,000 years later. How? How? And it's this. The promise of Jesus' return caused them to go from living lives marked by expectation to experiencing a life marked by expectancy. From expectation to expectancy. Now think about the subtle and yet profound difference. Expectations are based on our own personal demands and our own wishful thinking. Well, I think this is the way things should be, and so this is what I expect. Expectancy, however, is based on the promises of God. One category are the things that God has not promised. The other category is the things that God has promised. One leads to disappointment. The other one leads to a life of hopefulness and power. I love it how Lori Coombs put it. She said, there's a vast difference between expectation and expectancy. These two mindsets can be applied to just about any part of our lives. They can be applied to our lifelong dreams, our marriages, our children, our friendships, our careers, and they can also be applied to our relationship with God. She goes on to say, expectation expects things. It expects a certain outcome or that the outcome will be derived in a certain way. Expectancy, however, does not expect things. Expectancy hopes. It has faith that good will come, but releases the expectation of what or how it will come about. Expectations lead to disappointments and frustration and disillusionment. Expectancy leads to faith and joy and thankfulness. And so here's the question I want to conclude with asking you today. Which of these two are the driving force of your life? Expectation or expectancy? If you're like most people, myself included, you're managing a lot of disappointment in this season. And it's probably a good sign that you have been driven by expectations. And more specifically, it means that you're living for something less than the promises of God and specifically less than the promise of Jesus' return. But here's the good news. The good news is that God meets us to lift our attention once again heavenward, just as he did for these first disciples on the day of the ascension. And there may be no better time than the present moment to forfeit our demands on God and forfeit our demands on what life should be and really, truly begin to lean into what really has been promised, that Jesus is coming again and he's returning for you. And so here's the great question. Why are you still standing there? 
Why are you still standing here staring off into oblivion? There is a way forward marked by hope and joy and thankfulness. And it's found in the resurrected and returning Jesus Christ. Friend, your future is bright. So go get after it as you go get after him.